Hello, and welcome back to the Energy, Environment, Economy podcast produced by EBC, the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Anne Geisinger. I'm the Executive Director at EBC, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Here at Energy, Environment, Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from you know renewable energy to solid waste management, there's stormwater, water resources, climate adaptation, brownfields, real development, the list goes on. The energy and environmental industries are in a very exciting time and we are here to explore it all. So for today's episode, I'm chatting with Jane Parkin Coleman, lead consultant and human health risk assessor with WSP. She also has many letters after her name. So she's a PhD. Uh, she has a certified public health credential uh, CPH, and is a diplomat, diplomat, diplomat of the American Board of Toxicology. <laughs> Welcome, yeah, Jane. Yeah, still trying to figure that out. So, <laughs> diplo- I, I, I usually say diplomat. Diplomat. Oh boy, I didn't even get that one. So, and we actually know each other from another era of our lives. We were both active on uh, Tufts Environmental Alumni um, way back when. And um, I think the basically the last time I talked to you, you were on your way and in Australia. <laughs> correct your your next like sort of journey so uh, welcome back to the U.S. (laughs) yeah I mean it's it's actually ironic to me because I've now been back in the United States for almost or actually exactly six years so (laughs) it's really weird that I was only in Australia for three years but you know that time sort of looms large it's like it's like kind of everything's sort of pre-Australia and post-Australia post living in Australia. So, you know, even though we were only there for three years, it's sort of, it's now it's, it's, it is a little bit uh, weird to me that we've been back for so long. What do you think were maybe a couple of your favorite experiences while you were there? So we lived in Sydney. So one thing that is still amazing to me is we didn't have a car. So I took public transit everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's, there's beaches, of course, right <laughs> there. And so I went to the beach a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really different and fun. You know, I kind of missed that aspect a little bit. And then I met some really amazing people there. I, I made some really great friends that I still talk to. So that, you know, that's, says a lot. I think this, this such time is, uh, that much time has passed a little bit, but um, the people there are really, for the most part, really friendly and just, you know, easy to get along with. And then in terms of experiences, a couple of things we did that were really neat were we did a, a boat trip to Kangaroo Island, which is in South Australia. And so it's really, there are roads and things, but it's really been kept kind of separate from the mainland and so there's it's very wild for the most part and it's a really neat place to see wildlife mm-hmm. in kind of a more untouched setting. Can you talk a little bit about how you became a, a health risk assessor with sort of an environmental edge to it? Right. I didn't start out in risk assessment. I started out working for a consulting firm where we did work for the US EPA for their drinking water programs. And so the way it sort of developed was the program, the, the specific program that I was working on was the candidate contaminant list. And so that's an effort by EPA to assess they what they call the universe of chemicals. So our intent is actually to take the wasn't to take every single chemical that was in existence and narrow it down to the list of chemicals that EPA might want to consider regulating mm. in drinking water. So so that was the goal. And so I was a part of that whole project. 
And it was a really interesting experience. And so that exposed me to a lot of information about chemicals, uh, you know, regulatory processes, like how EPA regulates things, specifically drinking water. And then also a lot of information sources about chemicals, because that's how we got our information to put into, you know, we essentially made a database of chemical information to go through that process of screening chemicals that might need regulation or warrant regulation. I was working on that. And then we had a new person who joined the firm who had a little bit more of a risk assessment background. And so she kind of, she introduced me to the idea and the concept and sort of some, a little bit of the process. Right. And so that kind of got me started on the road to doing risk assessment. And then I went to Tufts, of course, for yeah. my master's. That's my Tufts connection. So I did my master's of uh, master science in water resources and environmental engineering there. And I did a few classes in toxicology and things like that. So I had, you know, got some more uh, academic experience there. And then when I got a new job after grad school, that's when I started as a risk assessor. So at Haley and Aldridge, I was in on the risk assessment team and worked with other risk assessors to do um, primarily actually Massachusetts work. Mm-hmm. That was, I did some regulatory compliance. So under the MCP, I actually, you know, I did all the risk assessment things, you know, method one, method two, method three, risk assessments and and so on. But I also got a lot of experience doing just other things. So I, you know, IRAs, RAMs, like, you know, permanent, uh, REOs, they called them at the time, permanent solutions. So I got uh, a lot of experience on the MCP side and then also risk assessment. So that was really where I have, I would say I learned, I learned a lot of just the basics. And you went on to do a lot of different certifications as well to add to your. (laughs) Well, yeah. So (laughs) when I knew I was going there, I looked into universities and things and I found, um, I contacted this professor and it just worked out that he was looking, you know, I applied and he needed a research student and here I was. So, so while I was in Australia, that's when I did my PhD. It's in the epidemiology of ALS. So we were looking at Mm -hmm. environmental factors that might be related to people developing ALS. The certified in public health thing uh, was something I just wanted to do because it was actually a trial that they started because the CPH credential used to be just limited to people who had actually like a master's in public health. Sure. And that always kind of bugged me because like I basically did a lot of the same things that are in an MPH curriculum, but just sure. with more of an engineering focus. So, you know, in the to the teens there, 20. 15, 16, somewhere in there, they started a pilot program where people who had work experience that was public health related could apply to take the exam. And so I was like, I want to do this. So I (laughs) did it, didn't do. So I'm just going to say there's like five domains, not so great on like the regulatory parts of public health, but like the science and, you know, that kind of stuff, that was fine. But it's sort of an interesting to take the exam because there, there are a couple areas where I haven't really done that much, but the yeah. you know overall it was it was interesting so I took that exam in Australia mm-hmm. <laughs> funnily enough so that's how that kind of came about it's just sort of and because I I don't have 
I don't have an engineering background to get like I don't have the need to get like a PE or something like sure. that so I was always looking for something that was a professional credential yeah. that I could have and so the CPH was kind of neat like that because I didn't have an MPA but sure. whatever so I could you know do that one and then the DABT was pretty recent so that was in October so I took that that's when I took the exam you know that was just something we don't have a lot of them at our company so it was just sort of something that we're interested because once in a while, you know, I think hope probably people listening might be familiar, you know, when you're doing proposals for work, it often specifies they want like this person with this credential. Sure. And so yeah. the DABT, yep. So, so the DABT is sometimes one of those things. So it'll say we want a board certified, like we want a certified toxicologist, yeah. um, you know, on the team. So that's where it comes in handy most of the time. And I mean, it's just a good thing to have because you can just say I'm a toxicologist. Right. So your um, recent presentation for ABC was during our risk communication webinar, where we asked the presenters to really discuss a little bit about communicating, communicating risk to the public. Being a risk assessor, you're, I'm going to ask, are you on both sides of the equation? One side of the equation where you're assessing risk based on data and information you're gathering from a site and on the other side of the equation are you also then communicating that or do you do you spend one your time more in one place or the other right i uh, i would have to say I'm, I'm really more on the former so i do spend more of my time sort of doing risk assessment and and not a whole lot of time on the communicating to people so that said one of the tasks that I do is this whole is is entirely a risk communication task. I have a couple of these actually, and and sort of the reason for the webinar was uh, I'm in I'm manage the communication of indoor air results to people who live in uh, properties where we've done air sampling. So it's sort of like a it's a it's definitely very much risk communication. Um, you know, we try to manage it so that it's just very structured and in, like I said, on the webinar, like templates are my best friend mm -hmm. because, you know, I don't have to come up with something new for each property. Um, you know, on one site, I tend to kind of use the letter for the property, like I, you know, we've sam we sample multiple times. So, you know, we start off with the letter with a template and then we sample and, you know, write it based on the sampling results. And then, you know, when we sample the next time, I actually tend to reuse that letter because then I can just update it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think one of the things that makes the, the tasks, you know, pretty successful is that, and, and we definitely do get questions from residents, which I'm more than happy to, you know, I address those. But mm -hmm. one of the things I think that makes the letters successful is that, you know, they're written very specifically for this purpose, yeah. you know, and, and they're written like for these people. So mm -hmm. again, like I, I, I keep saying like, as I said on the webinar, but it's, you know, I always think when I'm doing the letters, and I think this really goes for risk communication in general, uh, is, you know, think about somebody that you know, that, like, you know, that you're, you know, you, you would talk to, but that doesn't know about 
your work. So what would you say to them, like to convey what the situation is? And so, you know, that's, that's sort of how I think about it is like, you know, my, I don't, I don't think like, it's mostly like I was thinking, if I was thinking about like one of my friends or something yeah. and it was their house and I'd be like, and if, you know, if we did that, I'd say, you know, it's more like, is there a problem or isn't there a problem is right. kind of really what people are interested in. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, if there isn't a problem, people are like, great. Like, and they don't yeah. even care about it. Not, you know, That's they usually right. don't Results even care don't about the details. <laughs> like, it's kind of just like, if it's good, it's good. Right. And then if it's not as good, like, what are you going to do about it? Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So that was another thing, you know, is always every single letter has what the next steps are it never mm-hmm. leaves them hanging like so right. I think that's also I mean I think that's communication in general not even sure. just talking about yeah. risk but just when that's um you know I think I think and I think people are pretty good at doing that when it comes to risk communication but it's just it's always something to keep in the back of your mind like you mm-hmm. need to you can't just leave people hanging if you you know if there's something then you need to give people some sort of concept of what's next. Right. When it comes to your project team, so there's a team of folks, I'm presuming, on these sites, and it's a building. Are you there as part of a full project team where there are folks who are assisting you in both the assessment side and the communication side? Like, what does that look like for you? We have a, a massive team, like, a, and they're really great. So, you know, we have geologists, we have, you know, field people that go out and do the sampling yeah. you know we have a project pro- project manager kind of like one you know couple people that manage tasks and projects we have data validation uh folks so sure. they're the ones that and we have a database manager um then we have our risk assessors right <laughs> uh you know there's then there's environmental engineers, there's like remediation engineers yeah. and remediation, remediation design yeah. um, folks that are working on the team. So, so it's a big it's team a, of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and when it comes to risk assessment and maybe like the risk communication, you know, we, we tend to have people that we, we tend to keep that pretty narrow so right. that we can keep kind of consistent messaging yeah. so I I don't tend to like talk directly to people which is okay because yeah. <laughs> that's like we have people who do that so usually yeah. if a person so our project has a hotline so people right so we have an actual outside I think I touched on this in the webinar too like we have an outside communications firm okay. that manages like that manages the hotline and mm-hmm. manages like our public meetings mm-hmm. uh, and we have public fact sheets. So we have a whole, like beyond the results letters, we have really an entire exterior communication strategy and okay. team. So there's a hotline. So they send us, you know, when they get queries, they send them to us and then we respond. And so what usually happens is I will provide information to the person that's going to call the resident okay. and just sort of give them the sort of risk, this a summary of the information about what's been going on at the property and okay. what the results, you know, some general interpretation points. So, you know, so usually we kind of, there's a couple people that do that and, you know, I'm kind of more behind the scenes 
but mm -hmm. that, you know, so that's kind of how we, how we've managed that process. You do have people on site though, doing the data collection themselves, like doing their sample. Absolutely. Those mm -hmm. folks, I presume, I mean, are they getting special training? Cause a resident might come up to them and, and talk and ask questions. Right. So that, I, that does happen. So they are specifically trained to not answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> so the field staff, you know, and I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously very human impulse to want to help people or to yes. answer questions, but we, we do instruct them specifically not to say, like we say, they say you have questions, like they have a card uh -huh. that like a, I don't know if it's like a card or a postcard, whatever, like some, they have a card with the yeah, information no, yeah. about the, about the, like the project website and the hotline phone number. Right. So they say, if you have questions like call here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's our approach. So the field staff, like they do, they do an amazing job, but yeah, their job is to do the sampling. And so if they, you know, people are, you know, coming up to them or, you know, trying to like ask them stuff, they will just say, you know, call the hotline. Right. Given yeah. that you are primarily doing a lot of the assessment work and you're, you're really focused on that. When it comes to answering questions or communicating, have you done any training? Are there any ways to get better at communicating that kind of information so that you are providing people with what they need to know, but in a way that doesn't elicit a big reaction? <laughs> <laughs> it's not particularly any training that I know of. I think that just communication, communicating to people is, is really the key. And so you know, if you did kind of more of like the, you know, communication, like, I think there's a lot of people have to communicate to the public. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's yes. like, so you kind of, I think there are, you know, maybe some kind of training courses out there that just like help people with mm -hmm. exterior communications. I mean, I don't know if it's kind of the right sort of thing. It's more like speeches, but like some people I know have done like Toastmasters or things, then that's more about getting comfortable with public speaking. Yeah. But, you know, I think, I think it's more communication in general. And I've really just learned by watching other people do it mm -hmm. and then doing it myself. It's, it's been more of an experiential type training than like academic. Right. So, you know, I have seen a lot of other people do stuff and like, you know, in my PhD, I was trying to get volunteers to participate in like this small study we were doing as a sideline. And mm -hmm. so as part of that, I went to, I don't know, maybe like 15 or more rotary clubs in oh, yeah. all of like the greater Sydney area. Like I would go talk to anybody who would take me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, cause the Rotarians are very interested in kind of like community projects and community sure. involvement and things like that. So I would go and I would give kind of like 20, 25 minute talk about my research and they would, you know, participate in my little experiment if they wanted. So, you know, up until that point, like I had done some have more like work or like I presented AHS once or twice. So I'd done some presentations, but that was kind of like a boot camp because I was going and like I was just doing I basically reused the same presentation, but I did it a lot. And so right. I was like, this was the best because it really forced me to get out there and, yeah. you know, talk to people and and give this, you know, give presentations, you know, on a regular basis. And so I think just 
everybody has to start somewhere. And so maybe yeah. you have a few, you know, a couple rough outings, you right. know, to start with. And like, it takes, it takes everybody time, to, I think, unless, I don't know, maybe there's some gifted people out there that I oh, think, well, can sure just, like, there talk are. To, <laughs> I know that can just talk people's ear off, but yeah. you know, for the most of us, it just takes practice and, and having people help you. So, you know, I think like my research supervisor, I did a presentation at a, like the big MND ALS conference. And so he, you know, I did that presentation with him like a couple of times. And so he gave me feedback mm -hmm. on that. So, you know, you can practice, obviously practice beforehand, but just not just by yourself. Like you could practice with a small group. Mm -hmm. um, like at, if you're doing an exterior one, you could like practice it at work with kind of your colleagues, like a small group to get their feedback. And so things like that. So I think learning by doing is probably the best way when it comes to, you know, communicating to the public. Um, one thing that uh, gets talked about a lot is, you know, the public has only limited, limited skill in data interpretation, in scientific concepts, in, you know, especially when it comes to their, their own health, the health of their families in sort of interpreting, interpreting data that helps them understand what, how to move forward without, you know, being scary. What has your experience been with kind of the starting point of the public and, and, and the risk assessment that you're doing? You clearly know how to interpret the data. How do you help them understand how to interpret the data? that can be done with context. So I hope people can, you know, it, I think it's hard for people because they just get, they just see the number at the end mm -hmm. and they just, then it's like, oh, it's bad or, oh, or, you know, it's like, it's fine or it's not fine. Right. So, and it's, it's, it's just, it's challenging yes. because people tend to fixate on just that the last thing like the the end result sure so is it like thinking about okay if they're going to fixate on that last result if they're going to really see that number and that's going to be the thing that either scares them or makes them feel comfortable you just add in the context to that information by explaining sort of more about what that number might mean before you get to that number is it better to 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 say that number right off the bat and then get to the decision <laughs> you know and i guess a lot of it is probably written down too so you don't have control over how the person reads it right we tend to put things i think that one thing that helps is categorization so i think to help people avoid fixating on an ex an exact number or that sort of thing like we we categorize them uh -huh. and so and and epa does like this is true for really vapor intrusion risk assessments or any sort of risk assessment you know it's like there's a number the regulatory agencies say this is you know this is the okay number and so if you're at or below that number like it's oh like everything's good right and so if you can say people say to people it's kind of like i mean the same sort of applies to you know looking at concentrations in a medium versus a screening level and so like you're either above or below yeah. so if you're below like we're all you know and then if you're above like that requires more discussion so the same kind of goes for risk risk assessment results so if you're below those regulatory thresholds that have been identified then 
you know, that's like one category. And so like, you can tell people that like, you're in this, you're in the, you're in that category, your risks are below the, you know, the threshold values. And then, you know, there's another category where, um, you know, and our, we actually have a really good slide in our public meeting presentations that displays this, like, I mean, it uses color. So we've got like green, you know, green is good. And then we've got like the yellow, which we call kind of like risk management range. And then they do have a red, which I never like to use red, but that's what it is. So, you know, it's kind of like, so they say, well, you know, you've got the risk in the green range. So that means actually like we don't have to do anything. And then we've got this risk range. Like if your number is in this range, that's kind of the yellow range, then, you know, it's sort of like, it's okay, but we're, we keep an eye on it. Like we're going, we might, you know, we may or we don't need to do anything right now, but we are, you know, it's, it's called risk management because maybe if there are things that can easily be done to reduce the risk, Mm -hmm. then maybe we might do, you know, do something, but we don't have to do anything because we're still in this risk management range. And then when we're, when we get to the point where we're now above a threshold, you know, that doesn't, you know, these are all, the risk is just to inform decision-making really so like I think and it's I I mean I think it's hard for anybody to comprehend that like the risk number doesn't mean like you will get this a disease or you will have something happen to you right it's just to say like based on the information that we have you know you know these risks are considered acceptable and so but when you get above that range that means we're going to do something to reduce the risk. So it's like the whole goal, the whole goal of actually the whole process is if you calculate a risk that's above, you know, the risk threshold number, like we need to reduce that. Like we need to uh, do something mediation or (laughs) yeah, like, yeah, just, you know, we need to either mitigate that risk, you know, by, by implementing some, like we, you know, we can do exposure mitigation. So like there's some cases where, you know, if it's soil, like you can put clean soil on top of dirty soil and then that risk basically goes away because now you're not, there's no exposure to that soil anymore. If it's groundwater, like if it's a drinking water source, you can just provide an alternate source of drinking water. Um, So there's definitely like, and so there's different aspects of things there's different ways that you can mitigate risk and so but the again the overall goal is to you know to to say take that risk you know information and say well now we're going to do something to reduce those risks to where they're either below or within the risk management range yeah Yeah. What I'm seeing right now a lot in the media, and I don't know that the media is ever a risk assessor's friend, is a lot of discussion about um, emerging contaminants like PFAS, where it seems like there's different ways to think about this explosion of information about PFAS in the public's sphere. You know, they're getting their information from the news, not from the scientists. Do you have a perspective on how that plays out for folks like you who then have to go to public meetings and talk about risks of contaminants, not necessarily PFOS, but, you know, other contaminants? It's very, very complicated. Uh, <laughs> I guess yeah. It's not necessarily 
complicated. It's just, I mean, I haven't had to do a lot of PFAS risk communication, just that. Um, sure. Yeah. So I think it's always, we're always, we're kind of at a disadvantage then because we're trying to, you know, we don't know what sources people are using when, right. you know, the pub, when, like, if there is kind of a, if there is a public meeting, then people come to it and I don't know what they've read or what, yeah. you know, what sources they're using for information. So I think it just, and so everybody's sort of got a different, you know, because of all the attention that's put on something like PFAS, I feel like every, everybody's coming in with kind of a, maybe a different level of understanding, um, you know, using different, yeah, yeah, different starting points. So that makes it really challenging on our side because we might be trying to combat kind of like some degree of, of how this stuff is represented in the media. And I don't necessarily think, (laughs) yeah. And I think, I think it's just, it's going to be a challenge that we obviously have to face. And I think it's just, you know, something we kind of have to get over. And so like people, you know, they might have this information, like all we can do as people standing up in front of the public is convey like the information that we have. And so it's kind of like, I understand, you know, we understand that you might've read such and such in the paper or like online, whatever, but you know, at this site specifically, like, this is the situation. Right. And so I think if you can, you know, redirect people's attention, maybe to the actual, like the situation that, you know, is right in front of them. Yeah. Maybe that would help. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of to wrap up, have you felt like there have been experiences throughout your career that have really informed your ability to work with risk communication? Sounds like just getting in front of people and presenting your PhD research really helped you move forward and just being comfortable with getting out there, talking to people, making presentations. Were there other experiences that you've had where you've communicated and really learned a lot about that process? I I think towards to call back a little bit to something I said earlier was, you know, seeing other people do it is also useful. And so, you know, when I was more starting out and, um, and, and still now, like, because I don't really go to the public meetings for the site that sure. I'm working on, but because just we kind of leave that to the project manager uh, to kind of speak for everybody. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so I think seeing how, and, and then even how the regulators sort of manage the public meetings is also useful. So, you know, if, if I was sort of more like starting out or like more kind of a little bit more early yeah. career, yeah. I would say if you're on a site that like here in Massachusetts, we have the PIP sites, the public involvement project sites. Mm-hmm. So if you have me working on maybe an MCP site that is a PIP site, yeah. you know, a lot of times now with COVID, like a lot of those public meetings have moved online. So if you have the chance, like if your LS, the LSP on that project is doing a presentation, you know, as a public meeting to the PIP group, you know, go just like go see what they see what they do. So I would say, so I guess in terms of specific experiences, you know, I was on a couple 
projects that were PIP sites. So, you know, we did have some public meetings that I went to. And so I think that's useful to see how other people mm -hmm. handle yeah. their, their risk communication and public right. communication. Uh, and then, you know, start, if you're sort of starting out, like pick something that's, you know, kind of low, like a, you know, we like actually one thing that we started here with our risk team is we do a quarterly series amongst ourselves mm -hmm. um, with just our team where like we where we present on a risk topic or you know risk adjacent topic sure. and so that was something that we started so that some of our more junior staff can get experience talking and doing presentations and I enjoy it too so I would encourage people you know that's like another way I also got started is because we had, you know, some companies, they might have like lunch brown bags. So like, right. sometimes they do kind of like project spotlights, or, you know, a lot of companies have internal teams that are, you know, related to specific work areas. So, you know, if you have like, if you have kind of quarterly or some other regular meeting of your engineering group, or right. your environmental remediation group, like, they almost always will have somebody talk. And so one way to kind of get started on this is to just do a presentation internally. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Love to hear about your career path and your experience as a risk assessor and communicating that risk to the public. Thanks very much, Jane. Oh, you're welcome, Anne. It's been really fun. Great. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jane Parkin Coleman. Her experience with risk communication across a variety of populations and her tips and tricks for managing outreach are a practical approach to risk communication and risk assessment. And I do think her personal journey really il illustrates how unexpected yet fulfilling a career in the environmental field can be. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, abcne.org. This is a new podcast, so please like, rate, and leave a comment. I'm going to be reading them all and our staff as well. And if you have any suggestions, please let us know. We're taking to heart all of the comments that we get. So we'll see you in two weeks for a really interesting discussion with Freight Farms. It's a hydroponic container farm ag tech business. We'll learn all about ag tech and what it takes to bring food to all kinds of people. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, to Advanced Assistant Ashley Gray for her research and notes, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senek Music 2023.